third chapter of Revelation tonight, Revelation chapter 3. You remember we talked about the church at Sardis. The cities of Sardis and Philadelphia were both actually heavily damaged by an earthquake that happened during the reign of Tiberius in uh, A.D. 17. Sardis was actually closer to um, the epicenter of this earthquake, but it was Philadelphia that suffered the most from ongoing aftershocks. Uh, The empire actually provided disaster relief. They forgave the annual tribute uh, for a while of Philadelphia and Sardis. They also forgave uh, other subsidies that the cities were forced to pay. But in Philadelphia, to show their gratitude to Rome, they built this huge monument to Tiberius, and they actually named or renamed their city Neo-Caesarea, which of course means Caesar's new city. But their economic weakness, the fact that they just weren't Um, as well off or as stable as other places that slowed their recovery. And so even well beyond the earthquake, they had to remain heavily dependent on Rome in order to survive. The church in Philadelphia was most likely then, and we can also imply from or infer from the um, oppression they were facing in Philadelphia, which we'll get to in a few moments, the church was most likely poor and largely insignificant in the larger city of Philadelphia. And just as in the letter to Smyrna, Jesus speaks no rebuke to them. He only speaks commendation for them. They were suffering under the same type of opposition the church in Smyrna was. Uh, Those in the Jewish community of Philadelphia who rejected Jesus rather than embracing Him as their Messiah, proving, as this text will show again, to be not true Jews at all, but another synagogue of Satan, as the Scripture calls them, and 2.9, we read that here in 3.9, we'll read that. They are making the lives of this church and these believers very difficult. Both the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia lacked resources. Smyrna was poor. The Philadelphian church had what the text calls little power. They had no standing. They had no leverage in their community or against any of the opposition against them. But each of these two churches held fast in adversity here in verse 10. They were being pressured to deny their confession of Christ in Philadelphia, but they had not denied his name. Despite their lack of power and money, they were not dependent on Rome to survive like the city in which they lived was. This church stood as a witness in Philadelphia for Christ, even without power, without influence, without the same amount of funds and financial resources their opponents had. Since the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the support and endorsement or subsidy of our governments or of our communities is completely unnecessary for our witness to stand and to endure. And so Jesus tells this little church in Philadelphia to continue keeping his word with patient endurance, for he's the one who actually rules history, rules Rome, and rules all of their lives. As the church of Jesus Christ, we conquer the rebellion of his enemies and the deception of the evil one in the last days, not necessarily by overpowering them, but by a faithful and persistent witness to the truth of his word. So let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides our understanding of it. And we ask for this supernatural intervention in our hearts and minds this evening. Father, please help me speak clearly, concisely. Help me not get in the way of this passage. May I 
divide it rightly. May you be honored in it. May all those who are here be able to hear, to understand, to see what the text is saying to us, Father. And I ask for this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In verses 7 through 13 here of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to Philadelphia, Jesus introduces himself as the one who is holy and true. Now that phrase implies very heavily the deity of Jesus. Later they'll call him the sovereign Lord who is holy and true in chapter 6 verse 10. The word holy is a word used exclusively of Yahweh in Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. He's called again and again. It's used here probably to anticipate the fact that Isaiah 22, 22 is about to be quoted and the allusions to Isaiah that are there in verse 9. So it has a very, you know, Isaiah framework to the letter. There, Jesus takes on later in this text the role of Yahweh and his people unlike the synagogue of Satan in Philadelphia, are revealed to be the true Israel, the true people of God. Often in the Gospels, that phrase, the Holy One of God, was also a messianic title for Jesus, wasn't it? Mark one twenty four, Luke 4.34, John 6.69. This is what is meant by him saying that he's also the true one. He is the Messiah, in fact, the true Messiah who fulfills all messianic prophecy. But here Jesus also says this phrase, He's the one who has the key of David, which in general means his authority is unchallenged or unchallengeable, if that's a word. We'll get uh, here in a moment to the significance of this in the text. But that phrase here about keys has a slightly different meaning than it had in 118, where Christ said he holds the keys of death and Hades. Here, he says specifically that he has the key of David. That's the reference to Isaiah 2222, where it is Eliakim who holds the key of David. And where he opens, none can shut. And where he shuts, none can open. So that picture of holding the keys from 118 is about to be significantly amplified here to the letter in the church, of, to the church in Philadelphia. There, in 118, Jesus reveals that he has authority over salvation and judgment. Here, it means he is also the one that determines in verse 7, who will enter the kingdom? Who will be allowed in the temple of God? In Isaiah, Eliakim was a type of Christ. Isaiah writes of him in the same prophetic form in chapter 22 of Isaiah that he did of Jesus in chapter 9. Listen to the comparisons 
of Eliakim with the extremely popular or well-known messianic prophecy of Jesus back in Isaiah 9. The key, the government of the house of Judah, was set on Eliakim's shoulder. In 9.6, the government will rest on whose shoulders? Those of Jesus. In Isaiah 22.21, Eliakim will become a father to those in Jerusalem and Judah. In 9.6, one of the names of Jesus is Everlasting Father. In 22.23, Eliakim will become a throne of glory to his father's house. In 9.7, there will be no end to the increase of the government of the Lord Jesus on the throne of David. Right. Lastly, Eliakim was appointed to his royal position by God in Isaiah 22.21. So is the coming Messiah in Isaiah 9.6 and 7. The point here is that just as Eliakim once ruled over Israel, now Jesus, of whom Eliakim is a type, rules over the church, rules over the true Israel of God. It is Jesus alone that determines who will and who will not enter God's kingdom. That's what he's saying here, which is extremely significant to the church in Philadelphia, given that they're suffering oppression from those claiming to be God's people. It is Jesus who holds the key of David. It is Jesus who holds the key to the kingdom, not the opponents of the Christians in Philadelphia, regardless of their ethnicity. They don't determine who enters the kingdom of God. Jesus holds the key to that door. Look at 8 and 9 again. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut, because he has the key, right? I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So the one who is the faithful and true witness, we read about in chapter 1 here in 3.14, is sovereign over life and death, exercises that power on behalf of the church in Philadelphia. I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. So, The claim of those, here's what we're learning as we read Jesus speaking in this way, in these terms. Let me find my place here. Excuse me. The claim of those in the synagogue of Satan to be the true people of God, the true Jews, that's revealed to be a lie in verse 9. That phrase is very particular. Synagogue, well that's the word for where the Jews gather is the people of God. No, it's the synagogue of Satan. Jesus calls it. That should have meaning to us. So the claim of those in the synagogue of Satan to be the true Israel is revealed to be a lie in verse 9. Their wealth, their standing in the city, their status gave them added weight to attack the Christians, to make their lives very difficult as they were doing in Smyrna, since the church in Philadelphia has, by contrast, very little power. They don't have the resources at hand that the synagogue of Satan does. But the one who holds the key of David holds the church in Philadelphia. And he has unlocked the door into the kingdom of God for them. And no one can shut it. It doesn't matter what they're saying. It doesn't matter how they're oppressing them. It doesn't matter how much more money and status they have. They cannot shut the door. Jesus is open for these people. They're his people, not this synagogue that claims to be the synagogue of God, but Jesus reveals as the synagogue of Satan, those who 
oppressed them. The one who conquers in Philadelphia by holding fast to their witness for Christ will have permanent access to God's presence as a pillar built into his sanctuary, never to depart from his holy presence as a part of that building later in verse 12. The next open door that John sees in Revelation is the door into heaven in chapter 4, verse 1, through which he will enter and see the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. Since Jesus holds the key, no one can lock God's people out of this great sanctuary city of which he speaks. Jesus gives them the power to remain in his kingdom, even though they're being persecuted, even though in and of themselves they don't have much power at all. But this open door, as it often refers in the New Testament, also refers here in a sense to the opportunity God has given to this church to witness. Right, The phrase, I have set before you, repeated twice in verse 9 when he says, I will make, right? Let me look at verse 9 again. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, that you are my people. Right? By the way, the fact that some in this synagogue of Satan will come and bow down before their feet and learn that God has loved these Gentiles, these Gentile believers in verse 9, doesn't refer to their humiliation at the final comprehensive vindication of the saints, because on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess His Lordship, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, and believers will share in His dominion, Matthew 19, 28, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, Earlier in Revelation 2.26, Jesus is describing here a more immediate foretaste of that day, the day that is coming, in which the humiliation of their enemies means their salvation in repentance and their acknowledgement of Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus is telling them, I am about to turn many in the synagogue of Satan to Christ, to me. And notice this, beloved, this is important. These Jewish People say that they are Jews. Jesus says they're lying. They're not Jews. Now, how is that true if they're Jews? Beloved, that word has been explained by the time we get to Revelation. And we have to take it seriously. These things have meaning. They're lying when they say that they're Jews. How can that be? It means that a Jew, first of all, then, is now defined, who is a Jew, is defined by one's relationship with Christ. That's Romans 2.29. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but who is one inwardly. What does that mean if it doesn't mean what it says? Right? That's there. That has to be reckoned with. That has to at least inform our understanding of what the word Jew means in light of the coming of Jesus and the accomplishment of his work. That's so important for how we read that word Israel, how we read the word Jew now in light of the finished work of Jesus, as well as, as we understand in texts like this, how we understand Old Testament prophecy at all in light of the coming of Jesus. Now we can understand prophecy. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, that the Old Testament prophets were writing for us. They were writing for us, not themselves. 
the ones on whom full revelation has come in Christ. We are the ones that get the benefit of full revelation and meaning and explanation. We, we don't try to understand Jesus in light of prophecy. We understand prophecy correctly when we read it in light of Jesus. If we come to Matthew and start trying to read Jesus into or read those prophecies into him as though they are superior to him, we will misunderstand them. When Jesus comes, he's saying, now you know how to read that. Go back and read it again in light of what I'm doing. And now you will understand it. You don't try to fit things into me. You fit me into everything. And there comes our understanding in Isaiah's prophecy that this letter is heavily referring to the Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples, were to be saved in Isaiah as they came to bow at Israel's feet, confessing, surely God is with you and there is no one else. Nobody else is God's people. Isaiah 45, 14, the second part of verse 9 here. Look at what he says of them. They will learn that I have loved you. You are the ones. You are God's people. Well, these are Gentiles. These are Philadelphian believers Jesus said these people were lying when they said they were Jews. Why? Because they belong to their father, the devil. Right? In verse 9, Jesus says the same in John 8, 44. In Christ, the tables have turned. Right? Now words have their complete meaning. Now we have to read them in light of this. We have to read Isaiah's prophecy accordingly. Now that we understand what the words actually mean in the coming of Christ. It's the multi-ethnic church, what Paul calls the Israel of God in Galatians 6, 16, to whom these ethnic Jews are going to come and bow. And they're going to do what? Confessing that in the church, God's covenant love for his people is found. That's where you find it. That's how you know where it is. God in Christ brings this all about, which means it's another indication of Jesus' divinity. But he will make this happen. And listen, isn't this precisely how Paul speaks of how his, his strategy for mission work among Jewish peoples? He wants to make them envious of the Gentiles in Romans 11. That's his strategy. Here's how I'll win my people to Christ because Paul is an ethnic Jew. I will make them envious by taking it to the Gentiles. And here we're learning that this is how it's fulfilled. Right? This is how the mission is carried out. They will be regrafted in by faith into the tree of God's covenant people through the witness of the church that makes them envious of the Gentiles for being God's people in Romans 10, 19, all the way down to 11, 32. They will bow down and worship Jesus Christ, those who are currently in the synagogue of Satan. The prophecy that God will demonstrate his love for persecuted Israel before the nations is also being fulfilled, apparently, in reverse in verse 9. I will make them learn that I have loved you. They'll say, you are God's people? You're the Jews in that sense, and now we're the Gentiles that are going to come to you? How can that ever be? Well, because Jesus is going to make that happen. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's his prerogative to make happen. It's applied to the church here. That promise that they will see who God's people are. Instead of ethnic Israel, Isaiah 43, 4, 41, 8, 60 verse 10, 63 verse 9. This is, by the way, an application of sorts of what we talked about this morning. 
if we're not using Jesus and his authority and who he is and what he's accomplished as the means of our interpretation, we will not read the words that he's inspired properly. The Sadducees missed it because they mistook M for was. Right? That's possible, beloved. Doctrine hangs on the little words. Isaiah's prophecies that the salvation of Israel in these last days would be the spark for the salvation of Gentiles is being fulfilled in a very ironic manner now that Jesus has explained the actual meaning of our terms. The church is fulfilling the role of Israel in those prophecies while Jesus is performing the role of Yahweh in those very same prophecies. He is the one, Jesus, who is causing the unbelieving Jewish community to recognize that it is this Gentile church that makes up God's beloved people. And this is not only being fulfilled in the Philadelphian church, since these letters are addressed to all the churches, to anyone who has ears to hear in the first century and until the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus exerts his power of salvation and of judgment through his followers in their mission through which they witness faithfully to the gospel of Christ. Beloved, Matthew 16, 18. Look at verse 10 here. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The, the, the promise of Jesus is that the same power that made it possible for the church to become his people in verses 7 and 8, and remain His people, in verses 8 and 9, is the power that will also keep protecting His people spiritually from the tribulation they are about to endure. I think we're meant to interpret this text in light of what it was saying to them, and by extension what it says to us. That's how it's worded. It is because of their patient endurance in witnessing to the truth of Jesus Christ, their unwavering witness to that truth patiently over time, in spite of what they're facing, it is for that reason that Jesus will keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. I think we understand whole world in two ways here. There's the much more localized sense that whole world is used to refer to in the New Testament often, right? The whole world is used in Luke 12.1 to actually refer only to Palestine. In Acts 11.28 to a somewhat wider region, and then also in Acts 17, 6, 19, 24, 5. So often it's used to mean everybody in a, in a place, right? In a, in a region. It's a very localized term. In Revelation, it very often, however, means the entire globe. In Revelation 12, 9, 16, 14, it does refer to the entire world. But this hour of trial that he's speaking of here is one that is also going to come on them in Philadelphia. Jesus did not return in the first century, right? So we have to understand this. What is he saying to them? And by extension, what does it say to us? It says the same thing to us as it did to them. We just must understand it in light of all Scripture. This hour of trial for Philadelphia is referring the whole world to them as Asia Minor or the Roman Empire as a whole. The whole world as we know it isn't even settled yet. Which makes sense when we consider that these Philadelphian believers are going to go through this experience. What Jesus is saying is, what's coming, I'm going to keep you through it. 
I do believe he's referring mainly to their spiritual protection rather than their physical protection per se. I think the promise of Jesus here is saying that your faith will be preserved by me so that you won't falter. Nowhere in Revelation are believers promised immunity from physical suffering. Nowhere. It's just not there. I wish it was. The letter actually makes clear that believers should expect specifically physical suffering. But here, Jesus will keep them and will keep us, beloved, when this trial comes from falling away. The word trial here is also testing. If we read it that way, it says the phrase is, keep you from the testing that is coming on the world. The only other place in the New Testament we see that phrase is in John seventeen fifteen in the high priestly prayer of Jesus when very significantly, by the way, Jesus prays to God of his people, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. That's that same phrase, keep. That's where it is. Jesus, I'm not asking you to take my people out of the world. I'm asking you to keep them from the evil one. In John 16, Jesus promises believers his peace in the midst of tribulations. Perhaps we won't be removed from the world so that we don't experience physical suffering, but we will be kept by Jesus through that ultimate end time hour of testing and trial, which began in some sense then and will only intensify and get worse before the ultimate trial at the end, right? But the testing of this passage is a purifying and strengthening one for believers that brings divine punishment on unbelievers. We'll read about this more in chapter 7, verse 14. Remember that Jezebel and her followers in Thyatira will suffer great tribulation, not the one that's coming on the end of the world as we know it. Back in chapter 2, verse 22, the same phrase is spoken of the believers in chapter 7, verse 14, who come out of the great tribulation clothed in white, referring again to Daniel 12.1 and Daniel 12.10. God is through this Judgment, testing those who dwell on the earth, trying them in verse 10. This is judgment on earth dwellers, those who do not have access into the temple of God, this, his building that he's building. It's those whose citizenship is of the earth, not heaven. The term or phrase, those who dwell on the earth in Revelation, refers exclusively to unsaved people, namely idolaters. Believers on the earth, however, will be exposed to the physical dangers of this tribulation, the ones it will bring about, but they'll be kept from the spiritual danger of testing, the negative effects of this judgment, and will even be strengthened in their faith as it comes. Peter talks about this in First Peter very much. Unbelievers, however, will be hardened by these very same trials. That idea that this is what God is doing, this is going to become very clear As we read throughout Revelation, the effects of God's judgments on the world as they're happening, they harden unbelievers as the visions in Revelation unfold and yet keep believers safe, these trials, by refining their faith. Seeing it this way helps us make sense of the next verse in verse 11. I am coming soon. He's saying that to them. Now, if he's not going to come for two, three thousand more years, it doesn't mean he's not understanding his words or lying or something. It means we have to understand, okay, he's coming to them in a different way than his ultimate second in time coming. He says to the Philadelphian church, a literal church in Asia, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have 
so that no one may seize your crown. So he's coming, his coming here is that hour of trial he's going to bring on this region. That's why he speaks to them like this. This is relevant for them. He's not telling them he's coming soon if he's not coming soon to them, right? It's not his second coming. Again, 2,000 years have passed since this was written. These believers are gone. They never would have seen that if when they read that they were expecting his visible appearance. Their faith would have faltered. So that's not how he was meant to be understood for them. Although as we read it, we understand its meaning for us because this could come upon us. His literal second return. We need to read the fact that he tells them he's coming soon as something other than his second coming. This fact refers here to the fact that he's um, or I'm sorry, this refers to the fact that here he is coming soon. That is, Jesus is going to come in the power of the Spirit to help the Philadelphian church endure trial. He's saying an hour of trial is coming. I'm coming soon to help you stand up through it. They will not escape that tribulation. They'll be kept safe spiritually through it. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's telling the Philadelphian church. This means the promise of Jesus here is relevant to us Also, believers of any age going through trials, Jesus is always going to come and strengthen us. He is never going to leave or forsake us. That's what he's saying to the church. We don't have to be removed from suffering and tribulation in order to endure, beloved. Remember, it is through the cross, not around it, that our redemption was purchased. That seems to be the way. Glory comes after suffering, after trial, after testing that we experience. So the promise is not that they'll be kept from suffering necessarily, but that they'll be kept safe from apostasy. The Philadelphian Christians have kept his word. Now he's saying, I will keep you. Listen to these four promises again in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. These four promises are really different aspects of one promise. Jesus will write on the one whose witness endures. That is the one who conquers in Philadelphia. He will write on that one the name of his God and the name of the city of his God, as well as his own new name. And he will make him a pillar in the temple of his God. All of these images combine to point to the promise of eternal union with God and fellowship in his presence that faithful witnesses will receive. Jesus will make those whose witness to him endures a pillar in the temple of his God, God's one new building, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, Ephesians 2, 11 through 21. Very interestingly, the name of the city of God in Ezekiel 48, 35 is The Lord is there. That's the name of the city. This is the place where the presence of God dwells, which means it's the location of his temple, which points to the fourth part of this promise here. In verse 7, Jesus unlocked the doors of the kingdom to the Philadelphian church. Here he shows them the culmination of opening that door. They might enter into that place forever. Beloved, it's no small thing that God's eternal temple is brought in here in the same letter where the synagogue of Satan that thinks they are Jews and are not but are lying. 
It's mentioned in verse 9. Those two things are put in direct contrast in the text. The synagogue of Satan, the city of my God, right? The worldly institutional religious system in whatever form it takes. Now Judaism is relegated in the book of Galatians, beloved, to the elementary principles of the world. Now that Christ has come. But they will always, these systems, these principles of the world will always be assaulting True believers, those loved by Jesus and who have fellowship with Him, that refuse to get their strength from an earthly system or depend on earthly structures to hold them up. An earthly system, by the way, that the visions in Revelation will reveal is actually the servant of the beast and the dragon. The true sanctuary of God is being placed then in clear contrast with the synagogue of the Jews here, beloved, who by the way, now actually give ultimate allegiance to Satan by rejecting Jesus Christ. Again, in John eight forty four, for this reason, Jesus says to them, you are of your father, the devil. You're not my people, right? Their ethnicity didn't matter when it came to how they related to Jesus. The city of Philadelphia, where these people are from and where they live, had changed its name to the new city of Caesar in tribute to the emperor of Rome and his cult. But the church in Philadelphia also has a new name. The name of the God of Jesus. And the name of his city, the New Jerusalem, and even his own new name. There, one day, we will see his face. His name will be on our foreheads in 22.4. But even now, we bear his seal. God's name as a seal that will keep us faithful and shield us from his coming wrath that we'll read about later in 7.3 and 14.1. He who has an ear in verse 13, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That same exhortation ends each letter, universalizing it in a sense in its application. Beloved, we will need to hear what the Spirit says because we are going to need spiritual discernment in the midst of the trials we will endure. Right? If, if, if I'm wrong then we won't have to endure through anything really. And while we're all going up, that will be fantastic. And you can point at me and say, you were wrong. And I'll say, fantastic. I'm glad I'm wrong. Right? But if, but if I'm, if I'm right and the other way is wrong, the other way is not expecting to go through things that will shake our faith. And we need to be ready. We have the promise that he'll be with us. We have nothing to fear. And do I know how it's going to shake out? No, I really don't. I mean, I have my views and my Opinions that I've tried to arrive at responsibly. I just hear it seems like the church needs to be ready to suffer. And I know there are different kinds of suffering, but this is, this is a different kind of suffering. This is suffering that will shake the world, not just us, right? Only by hearing Him speak to us through God's Word will we not deny Christ's name. And will we gain our final reward as faithful witnesses? If our minds are fixed on heaven, or if our minds are not fixed on heaven, we are going to be deceived by the earth. Christ commended the church in Philadelphia for its persevering witness. He promised them that He's going to empower them further for that witness. He encouraged them to keep persevering, that they might inherit eternal fellowship and identification with Jesus Christ Himself, Beloved, listen, all of that is ours to be had 
by simply remaining faithful in our witness to Him. This is what results from fidelity to our Lord and His gospel. All we're called to do is faithfully, persistently, accurately proclaim the good news of our Savior's redemption for sinners. That is what it means to be the church in the world. Because He is the Lord of all history and calls the shots and will bring it to a close. Therefore, His church has been sent on mission before the fire falls. As the church of Jesus Christ, we conquer the rebellion of His enemies, their assaults, the deception of the evil one in the last days, not by overthrowing them, but by a faithful and persistent witness to the truth of His Word. The witness to the Gospel is stronger than all the powers of the world and the enemy that oppose it. We cannot lose. Jesus Christ has set us up for maximum impact. He structured us for commissioned us with a task, a mission that no amount of opposition or evil will ever be able to thwart. To thwart. The message cannot die. The Word of God is not bound. 2 Timothy 2, 9. What we must pray for then as God's people is faithfulness to hold fast to our witness. That's the main thing to pray for. We need the ministry of the Spirit, the presence and strength of Jesus Christ with us all the time if we're going to be the church He desires us to be. Beloved, God is not calling us to proclaim a message that we don't know, that we can't really grasp, or that we don't love, right? If, if you hired me to give a lecture on the Pythagorean theorem, I promise you we'll all leave dumber than we were when we walked in. I promise you. This gospel, you are as fit to proclaim it as I or anyone else is. It, it, the power of our message is in the message. It's not in the deliverer of it. It's not in the communicator of it. God may use those things as means, but beloved, our message, that to which we are witnesses, this is where all the power of God for salvation is. Our witnesses to the gospel. It's to the proclamation of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of our Savior Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the salvation of sinners just like us. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We have nothing to fear, even if we end up having to endure in time tribulation. Christ will hold us fast, whether we go through it or not. He will hold us fast. He's not only holding us fast because we're His people and He loves us and has redeemed us, with His very own blood, justified us by His very own resurrection, prays for us at the right hand of God the Father Himself. That's not the only reason He's holding us fast. He's also holding us fast so that what He bought with His blood from every tribe and language and people and nation in Revelation 5, 9, and 10 will be brought into the kingdom as He opens the door for every single one of them. He made the church for that, and we are all witnesses. This is who we are, and it's what we do. And we must be aligned with Him until the very end, beloved, until the very end, that great day when we enter in and walk with Him in white forever, beloved. This is the witness that conquers the last days. 